Good morning, everybody. It is a particular joy for me to be here, share the Word of God with you. And also, in this special service, we had two people baptized and confirmed. I, for one, do enjoy the testimonies in particular because not many Reformed churches would do that. I don't know how long we'll keep on doing that, but for the time, I hope that you can appreciate that, that whatever stage they are in, they came and presented that to us, and we see how God has worked in their lives in the past, how they are working, how he is working in them now, and as we look forward to that life of sanctification in the future. So let's continue to pray, especially for Hope and Christian, as they have been admitted into our fellowship this morning. I still remember a lot of those testimonies. They stand out uh, because they are quite remarkable because of what God has done in their lives. Like last testimonies that we heard were from Brandon, uh, from Calvin, from Martin. And so they were special as well. And I believe it continues to remind us to pray for those that have been admitted into our church and come alongside them in good times and bad. And so today we are going on a theme of thanksgiving. And I've titled this sermon, Giving Thanks in a Thankless Generation. And so before we get into the sermon, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God, illumine the word to us now that we may understand what is read and what is preached, that the Holy Spirit would renew in us a spirit of obedience and thanksgiving, giving you glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Psalms 100, the Psalm 100, verse 1 through 5, to the book of Psalms, chapter 100, 1 through 5. And you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I hope that everyone had a wonderful, memorable Thanksgiving this past week. I hope, I sincerely do hope that this past Thanksgiving was one of the most memorable that you've ever had. I think it's important that it was or that it is. I am thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful for this church, its leaders, all its servants. I'm thankful for what may seem little but is wild, like this morning. Who would have thought, as you were entering these doors this morning, who would have thought that you would have heard an Irish jig? And yet we heard the violin go off, and it was spectacular, wasn't it? 
I thought we were in Ireland for a quick sec, but here we are in New Jersey, praising God with a jig. But I'm thankful for our baptism, our confirmation. I'm thankful for this place. And I thought that we could do a sermon reflecting on Thanksgiving. And I think it's a very important thing that we should go over. Again, I'm going to go, like last week, over a sorted scripture And I hope that you can follow along. But I do have three points for us this morning. And number one is our condition. Number two is our poverty. And number three, his covenant. Our condition, our poverty, his covenant. So number one, our condition. Of all the holidays, it's remarkable to me that in today's society, this holiday that just passed seems to be getting attacked the most. And have you ever thought and ever wondered why? There is this false narrative always going around, and we continue to disprove it with archaeological findings, with writings, through traditional history, oral history, that it was like white versus Indian or something like that. The white people came for the first time in like 1620 or 1619, which is also false. Like the French people were coming here 100 years before even the pilgrims trading. And so all these false narratives are going away, coming out, trying to detract from Thanksgiving. There's a woman soccer star, probably more famous for her political points and viewpoints, but... In her last NWSL, National Women's Soccer League Championship game, six minutes into the game, she sustained an injury. And she said it was probably a tear in the Achilles. Post-game, they interviewed her. This is why this was a standout interview to me. And this is what she said, quote, I am not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, this is proof that there isn't. End of quote. If there was a God, this is proof that it wasn't because she sustained an injury during a soccer match. I find that intriguing because to this person, God couldn't exist. There can't be a God because a bad thing happened to her. And there's all these things that people can think about then. If a bad thing happens to you in particular, is that proof or evidence that there is or isn't a God? And when you continue to think about it, I do think that many people gave her criticism for the remark But I do think that it is a condition that we all face, that we all are susceptible to, and in some ways, perhaps we can relate to it to whatever degree. Because there is a sin that is as ancient as the beginning of man. In fact, the very first sin of creation is so intricately tied to this sin that it's almost impossible to separate it from eating the apple itself. This is the very sin of the human heart. I'm going to read for you from Romans 1, chapter 18 to 24, because 
it tells us what that sin is. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. By not acknowledging God and giving thanks, which is proper, our foolish hearts have been darkened. You know, when I was younger, I would spend a lot of time debating, even arguing sometimes, but trying to convince people that there was a God. But here in verse 24, uh, 21 that we read, the Bible shows us that people know that there is a God. People know there is a God. Every human knows that there is a God. The darkening comes when what? When we refuse to honor him and give him thanks. And it becomes so dark that I often find that for most, it's not just a matter of temperance when it comes to their faith in no God. It is a faith to be an atheist, it's a faith that there is no God. But many, if not most times, when an atheist, atheist comments about God, it is dripping with contempt. Things like only ignorant fools would believe in a sky daddy that does something for them. Or you only believe in God because we don't have the answers yet in science. And the Bible says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. There is nothing to hold up if you don't believe in God, there's nothing to hold up except creation, except created things, birds, animals, creeping things, and mortal man. For most in this generation, the self is lifted up as the highest, the zenith, the apex of all there is. And when that is lifted up, when the self is lifted up, it's no wonder we are so miserable. Of course, then, when you get injured, you think that there can't be a God. That would make sense then. But this doesn't exclude those that claim to even know God. If you say you know that there is a God, but you don't honor him or give thanks to him, you are still in that camp. There are many more, I believe, that would say that they know him, even love him, but you don't honor him 
in the way he desires. You don't give him thanks. And so one cannot get away from the correlation between the wrath of God and then a thankless person. And that's the question for us today, isn't it? How do you give thanks? Do you even give thanks? Do you give thanks in a way that you think is right, or do you give thanks in a way that honors God? Let's go to point number two, our poverty. I believe that the reason why the proper way of thanksgiving escapes us is because that this base corruption has gone so deep in our society and culture, it clouds our minds and makes us blind to the truth, especially the truth of God's word. I'm going to read to you another passage from the scriptures in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, 18, 11 to 18. So Luke 17, 11 to 18, it says this. And this is a popular story, a healing story of Jesus, a miracle that Jesus did, but I would like to remind us of it. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, there are many lessons that Jesus gives us by showing us this example of the healing miracle. But one must understand the context. I think it's important to understand this context. When the Bible talks about leprosy, it's significant, it's heavy. Why are lepers so significant in the Bible? In fact, the Bible really does make a big deal out of leprosy. It's included in the Torah and law. You know, if you read the Bible, you read Genesis, it's great, it's fun, this narrative goes along, Exodus, oh, free my people, you think of Prince of Egypt, it's great. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, what happened? And then a lot of people die down in their Bible readings by Leviticus. But Leviticus is talking about priestly duties, about this law, how to do this sacrifice, what the ceremony is about. And it's all this... Um, description, this instruction on these ceremonies. But Leviticus is also noteworthy because it takes the most time of all the topics that it talks, and it talks about a lot of ceremony, of all the topics that it talks about, it talks about leprosy the most. Isn't that fascinating? It talks about what priests need to do, about this sacrifice, this sacrifice, and then it talks about leprosy. In fact, leprosy takes up two chapters in Leviticus, chapter 14 and 15, and it has uh, 59 verses in one and 57 verses in the other, which is 
the longest chapter. So if you combine them in total, there's over 100 verses on leprosy. That's why they had to even split the chapters, the longest chapters in the book. And combined, they would hold the most detailed instruction on any topic in Leviticus. And that's including the priestly duties and the sacrifices. And leprosy is a big deal. We might not look at this story and be like, you know, he healed the, it's not like he healed the blind, right? The blind is a big deal when we see Jesus healing the blind. But leprosy in the ancient world was such a devastating disease that if unchecked, it could wipe out an entire civilization. A nation could disappear if you left leprosy unchecked. It was a word in the ancient word, world that if you mentioned it, it would instill fear. And then if you had a lesion on your skin, man, you would be scared. You'd have to go to the priest, effectively the doctor at that time, and the priest would analyze you and you would await your fate. You know, it's pretty similar to us today. Uh, What is a dreadful word that you don't want to hear in your life? especially as you get older, is the word cancer. If you have a tumor or growth and the doctor does a biopsy during that wait, that could be quite anxiety-inducing. And to hear the words negative or positive can either bring great elation and relief or devastation and ruin. And I would think that leprosy is somewhat similar to cancer today, except that leprosy is contagious as well. It's contagious. So if you had leprosy, you would require the ultimate quarantine. You would have to leave your family, leave your job, leave your community. You have to either live alone or with others with the same disease. You would carry a bell around your neck so that when you walked, anybody in earshot, that means they could hear this bell, would not go near you. And if still they went near you, even while you were wearing the bell, you would have to shout, leper, leper, so they wouldn't come near you. It was a devastating disease to have in the ancient world. In so many dimensions. Now imagine that. And then there are 10 lepers They see Jesus, and it says here, at a distance. Why? Because they had to maintain that distance. So from a distance, they start shouting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And they call out to him for mercy. And when Jesus sees them, he tells them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And at first glance, That might sound sound like a dismissal. Say, I don't want to get near you, just go. But it's not. What Jesus was doing, and if you continue to read Leviticus, you would know, he was telling them to follow the law and show themselves to the priest because if they were cleansed, he would deem them so. And then through the priest's deeming of cleanliness, you would be incorporated back into society. That is a big deal. Jesus was following the law. Now I want to get to what is the troubling part now that I give the context. Out of the ten, only one turned back and said, 
praise God. And he praised God with a loud voice. He would fall at Jesus' feet and give him thanks. And to top it off, he wasn't even a Jew. He was a Samaritan, a pagan, someone who doesn't even know the law. But that's not the troubling part. The troubling part about this is what people say about this very section. They think, or maybe even you heard someone preach, that out of the ten, only one was grateful or thankful. Out of the ten, only one was grateful or thankful. And I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul. He says, that's crazy, unquote. That's crazy. And I agree. I think it's crazy to think that nine out of ten people were not grateful for what happened to them. Are you seriously thinking that if you had this devastating disease that's debilitating not only to you physically, but societally, communally, you can't hug your kid anymore. You can't even see them, touch them, go to your spouse, nothing. You're cut off. Imagine that. And all of a sudden, through Jesus' words, you're healed. You don't think you'd be grateful? You were separated for how long? To what degree? Immediately, I think you'd, be, you'd feel grateful. But the story isn't about who was grateful. And I agree with the great sprawl that it is crazy to think that 9 out of 10 people weren't grateful. Anyone would be grateful. The problem wasn't who was grateful, but rather who returned and gave thanks. Were they bad people for not coming back? Would you blame them personally? You were separated from your spouse, your children. You can finally lift them up and hug them and say, I love you, I'm back. Wouldn't that be the first thing that you'd want to do if you knew you had been healed of leprosy? But not one man. One man said, I probably can't wait to go back home. But he thought, I cannot go back until I show my gratitude to Jesus. Gratitude must be shown. That's what it means to give thanks you should also see this when you raise children, even at a basic level. You realize that you have to teach them to show gratitude. Otherwise, what happens? If you don't teach your child how to show gratitude, show it, they become increasingly ungrateful. The less you show gratitude, the more ungrateful you become. And so how do you give thanks to God and what does giving thanks look like? Let me go to our last part, his covenant. In the passage that was read today, we see a psalm on giving thanks. And how fitting, right? The structure of the psalm is quite simple. There are two parts, but each part ends with a rationale on why we can give thanks. And you can tell which part that is because every other sentence has an imperative, a command verb. Make, serve, come, know, enter, give. And anytime a sentence does not end, uh, start with that command verb, that is the end of a part. 
And in verse 1, the call is for all the earth to make a joyful noise. The reason why anyone exists, the reason why anyone exists is because of God. The reason why any goodness has come upon you is because of God. And so the invitation that the psalmist starts with is for all the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord. When a king would return triumphant from battle, the fanfare he would receive in his city would be like this. There would be a joyful noise that is made. It's the sound that you would make too. Now, if you won the lottery, times infinity, because that's what you receive from God. So how else do you give thanks? You serve the Lord with gladness. And I remember some criticism given to our usage of the word service for our worship services. But that's exactly what we are to do to give thanks. We serve the Lord with gladness. In the Hebrew, the word for work and worship are indistinguishable. The word for work and worship is indistinguishable because It's the same word. It means worship. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That work is the word serve here. It's the same word. And that's why it's a mistake to separate your work from worship. Your work is your worship. And your worship is your work. And it makes you take a step back a little bit, doesn't it? If you're all smiles here and Mr. or Miss Grumps at work, I'm afraid you don't understand how God commands us to be living sacrifices for him. We are not called to be holy only at church for service, but also from Monday to Friday when you were at work. You don't don another outfit. There isn't a work you, a home you, and a church you. There's only you who's been called by God to serve him. Next, we come into his presence with singing. But what could you sing about if you don't know what to sing about? That's why in verse 3, we are to know the Lord. The Lord is the covenant name Yahweh. He is God. So knowing is a prerequisite of praise. And while no is a command, we recognize that it's also a gift. It is because we know we can come into his presence then with singing. And his covenant name is used here because the next sentence is about the covenant. It says, it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We acknowledge who God is. We give him due honor. And we know who we are. He is creator. We are his creation. To give him due honor and thanks, this very basic knowledge must be acknowledged and deeply received. Just a few psalms before this, we're reminded as well in Psalm 95, 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. 
and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This theme is throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, 10 to 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God isn't real because he gives us what we think we deserve, like a successful career with zero injuries. God is real, and he gives us what we do not deserve, because rather than giving us his wrath, he calls us to be his people. That's the reason why we ought to give thanks. We cry for mercy, and he healed us. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Lepers or the disease, the sick, they were not allowed to enter God's temple. They couldn't even enter the outer courts. We couldn't enter the outer courts even. But through the blood of Christ, we are not only able to enter the courts, which is cause for the loudest praise, but we can go all the way to the Holy of Holies, the most intimate place with God, and it is made available to those that are in the covenant. And continue, give thanks to him, bless his name. In all these ways, we give thanks to the Lord and we bless his name. So he reveals himself to us in two ways, his perfection and through his actions. He reveals himself to us in his perfection and through his actions. And it says this in verse 5, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is a shortened version of when God reveals himself to Moses and proclaims the name of the Lord. Let me read it for you in Exodus 34, from verses 5 to 10. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So after the revelation of the Lord's name, what happens in verse 10? And he says, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the covenant God. He makes a covenant with an undeserving people. We are not good. We don't have anything good in ourselves. But he makes this covenant with us because he is good. He is perfect. His perfection. And we know that he will remain faithful because he has shown it in his actions. 
All throughout the Bible, we see the Lord's actions showing us His faithful love to His people. But it culminates in the perfect Son who came to die and give up His perfect life that we may live with Him perfectly in all eternity. The ultimate action is the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus remains forever, we have assurance that His steadfast love will also remain forever to those that He has called to be His people, the sheep of His pasture. There is your reason to sing to shout, to serve, and to worship the Lord our Maker, and to give thanks for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. I particularly enjoy how thanksgiving is translated from the Greek Eucharista, where we get the word Eucharist or communion, you meaning good, charis meaning grace or gift. So it is a good gift that God gives us when we partake in the table. Think about it. We don't have the communion table with us now, but we will in next week. But Eucharist, it's a good gift that God gives us. It's the communion table. It's from this table every other gift comes from comes to us because He's the one that brings us and seats us at his table. Through this covenant, through the covenant, you get an overflow of all these other blessings. The blessings in your life, the overflow and abundance that you have starts from the table of Jesus Christ and it continues to pour out and pour out and pour out. This covenant that you have been grafted into it is no small thing. It is a gigantic deal. It's a huge thing that we are part of this covenant. And that's something that we can give thanks for, is it not? It's something that we can shout for joy for, is it not? It's something that we can serve the Lord for in gladness, is it not? And that's why we do the things that we do. We show thanksgiving because we recognize what the Lord God has done. I want to end with one thing that you can do, among many things, but there's one thing that you can do that I want to encourage this church. If you are thankful for something, express it. Express it as the Lord commands. Make a joyful noise, sing, serve, Worship God. Don't just be grateful here and be like, I'm very grateful. That's what the other nine did. But Jesus commends the one that comes back, returns and give thanks and worships because that is the proper honor that is due God who has given us so much. Has he not? And so one thing I will exhort you to do is to verbally, vocally give thanks with someone to God. We do it here every Sunday as we sing songs, as we pray the prayers of faith and confession. We do it as we are Christians with every fiber of our being. But I want you to practice. Practice with the most intimate people. So here's what my wife and I do that I will just give you an example of. Every day when the day is over, 
before we go to bed, we challenge each other to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, when you pray, you can pray all these things of supplication. This is not true. There are so many things that we need in life. You don't have a job? We need a job. You're not married? You need to be married. You're married? You want a good marriage. You have a kid? You want the kid to grow well. You want a house? You need a house. You want a TV? Okay, but we can continue to go on and on and on with supplication. But sit down and start to give thanks. And you will realize that that list is longer than your supplication. There are so many more things to give thanks for than things that we need. Is that not true? Why are we not expressing it then? Express it in your prayers. Express it in your service. Express it in your worship. Thanks be to God for giving me this life for inviting me to the table. And from the table, we see a plethora of blessings that flow upon his people. I witness it in the little things to doing the Irish jig, to the big things. Like we have a sanctuary to look forward to, to gather one day to worship God in a place that we can call home. What a wonderful reason to give thanks as a people never forget what has been done for you on the cross, how you have now been invited to the table and you will have nothing that you will ever lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. May that be our declaration and may we always give thanks for the goodness and the steadfast love of God our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do from hope and Christian, but to all of us who have been baptized and confirmed into the faith and have been brought into the table of Jesus Christ. May we not express it with all our lives, serving you with gladness, singing with joy, and making a joyful noise as we enter into your courts with thanksgiving. Let's take this time to pray, and as we have been exhorted, reflect on what you can be thankful for. And there are a lot of things. Start with the table that you have been invited to. Start with engrafting of yourself into the family of God, and continue to give thanks to God. And ask that your life may be a life of thanksgiving to him. Let's pray.